Hello, I'm David Hughes and this is Rogue Commentary, a new podcast featuring audio commentaries for cult and classic movies by the filmmakers and other interesting people. This episode is sponsored by White Label, who design, encode and author Blu-rays for independent filmmakers and smaller distributors. Check them out at white-label.film. On our very first episode of 2021, we're proud to be supporting another independent British production with a brand new exclusive commentary for the low-budget black comedy Criminal Audition, recorded exclusively for us by director Samuel Gridley and his co-screenwriter Luke Cale. As always, you can listen like this as a podcast or cue it up to the film, pausing not on the logos but on the first frame of the film itself, waiting until Samuel and Luke tell you when to hit play. Hello, uh... Thank you for joining us on this Rogue commentary. Um, My name is Luke Cale. I'm uh, the producer, writer, and I also uh, act in this film. Um, Too many hats, never do that again. Too stressful. Um, Just so you know, if you want to queue up the film, um, we're going to go, we're going to pause the film after the logos um, because we're aware that if you're in a different territory, there might be different timings with the logos. Um, So we've actually paused the film uh, on, uh, on on our copy, 43 seconds in. Um, but what you're looking for is, uh, it's a good freeze frame, actually. It says, muzzle the pig and more Jew pictures present. So if you just cue that up ready, um, that's where we're going to go very shortly. Uh, but I'm not just doing this commentary myself. I'm joined by uh, Samuel Gridley. Sam? Yes, I'm Samuel Gridley, and I directed and co-wrote Criminal Audition. So, I'm uh, going to count us all in here. So, uh, Three, two, one. And uh, these are our lovely title sequences. Um, Sam, do you want to talk a bit about how we put them together? Yeah, so they're pretty interesting, the title sequences, uh, the whole title sequence. Because originally, um, we didn't uh, really have an opening like this. Uh, Essentially, the opening was as we can see here as Ryan walking into the uh, into the abandoned theatre um, our opening sequence was quite simply uh, Ryan going in uh, and uh, exploring the new location for the criminal audition and that had always been the plan all along um, and when we got to shooting uh, I had had some other ideas for opening shots and quite simply we couldn't achieve them. Um, and it might sound simple, but we didn't even have, you know, a track and dolly. And there were things I wanted to do with it that was very smooth and following Ryan walking in. And so at the time I had an idea that I thought was uh, was great, which was uh, just holding on the shot of the, of the entrance to the theatre. And I thought that was, you know, quite um, kind of bold and beguiling. But actually, when we um, got to editing, it was quite boring, and uh, especially for an opening <laughs> shot of the film. And uh, originally, we'd we'd had this sequence where Ryan walks in. There's our names. Uh, where Ryan walks in and uh, he um, just explores. But then, when the film started to get um, themes of uh, Western, you know, standoffs and things like that. It just seemed a great fit to have these titles, which are heavily inspired by the World Bunch. I'm sure that the World Bunch has imitators and things like that. 
Um, but it just felt like we could quite economically have a kind of a barnstorming open uh, with uh, these titles. And, and they're put together by some amazing graphics guys, Chris Lunny um, and at Ian Sargent. And Ian Sargent at Envis, yeah. And they were great and they were fantastic with their references. And those titles were made, even though through computer, but quite... Uh, quite physically there was lots of photocopies going on and they really made it look like or a good <laughs> imitation of uh the sam peckapal film um but also the colors were trying to reflect the different rooms that we had in the film and basically it was one of the last things we did and it really tied everything together and hopefully opened the film yeah to what you uh, uh were in for you know and this is our opening scene here with uh uh Angela, Angela Peters, and, and myself. Um, and this was, this was actually in the script for a long, long time, this scene, and it just got, it got shortened a bit. But uh, other than that, it was always, always around. Yeah, I liked the... Um, I think it's funny because Angela's such a terrific actress. She really is. And, but we only shot with her a couple of days because her role is relatively small, but not insignificant. And I think... The, the running joke with Angela is that she's not that important. And I think even on our Blu-ray, her the only shot of her has got a bag on her head. But actually, um, this scene <laughs> and why this scene stayed, whether it was a bit shorter or longer, um, was because it's a it's a tone setter for the film. Um, and I think that it's actually like yeah. a, kind of a scene that a lot of scenes like that were in the early drafts, Luke, I think. Yeah. And uh, just to point out that tape recorder, the visual effects, our first visual effects, that red light uh, was a the, uh, visual effects added in post. The blinking the light, blinker. yeah. Um, no, there are lots of scenes in the film, and, and a lot of these early scenes are quite like um, uh, the scenes that we had in the early drafts that actually you did alone, Luke, and not necessarily with me, which was, yeah. um, you know, little awkward encounters with strange characters. And so I'm glad that we kept those sort of odd interactions at the beginning of the film to really set the tone. This, this room in particular is just so much fun because this is our green room. So we've got these gold streamers. We've got these three <laughs> bizarre uh, people sat with sacks on their heads. We really wanted this opening to just be constantly asking, presenting you if you had more questions about this. Just what is going on here? Um, and we had a lot of fun um, starting this out like this. Uh, and even my character, because we're kind of through Ryan's eyes, even Ryan's uh, coming into this, because uh, Rich's character, William, has added these effects, has added the, the handcuffs, particularly for this audition. So it made my character, the same as the audience, I suppose, equally confused. Yeah, yeah. And I liked the idea of, you know, kind of bombarding people with this strange world and... and uh you know, as you say, every moment's kind of another question which kind of builds through through the first act really is that we don't really know. We, we ask a lot of questions and don't really give many answers. <laughs> I remember um, what was so great just to speak about P, who we've just saw there, is uh, P, uh, Ben Sheck, was actually cast uh, very late on to the point where we had actually already started filming. Um, and Ben did some really great uh, actory things in the sense of learning his lines very quickly and just coming on set uh, the next day due to some issues we had. 
uh, with another actor. And uh, we had already, I think we were already maybe a week into filming when Ben came yeah, onto set. Yeah. Um, so he did fantastic just to just go straight into this very comedic role he has. Yeah, and I think that, you know, when Ben came in, it wasn't like, he, he didn't have a second thought about, um, oh, I'm, so there was another actor in my place. He just gave it his all. And I think that was really commendable to not kind of get hooked up on that. And it was just for scheduling conflicts and, things like that um and but we were so uh lucky to have ben uh come in and be so professional about it and and fantastic there's a a cool thing here also is that you might have seen uh, i gave them all chewing gum uh originally i think it had it in the script that it would be dna swabs or something up the nose um but our forensics uh consultant who is actually just my friend who is someone who tends to crime scenes, said uh, chewing gum would be a, a very good way of doing this. And that's why that's chewing gum. Yeah, I remember always, you know, kind of thinking about those little details to put in um, in the early stages. And then it's strange because you kind of put those little details in. And then when you're actually doing it on the day, you're like, OK, so we just we need this information to get across and that character to say this line and, you know, all that kind of thing. And you and you miss those little bits. So it's great to look back and like remember like where that came from with the chewing gum and and you can't always you know go in and do close-ups and chewing gum and be like that because you know we've researched and we got great advice on that because you know uh you know you can't waste the time like you have to like get to like your story and things like that i've got to say the scene that we just saw which is the chain gang the guys going across uh, people with a, a keen eye would have noticed that Ben seems a lot taller there. Uh, and that's because, as we just said, we hadn't cast Ben by that point. So that was actually a body double for the other actor. And that's why he's taller. Um, but it's something that no one noticed. So there we go. Got away with that one. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Um, I think that that's just a nice little nugget of uh, trivia that we have in there now. Um, oh, and here we go. There's the uh, one of the very early surviving parts of the uh, film, which is this great like VHS tape explaining how the criminal audition works. Um, well, you, you came up with, well, I've got to give you credit for that because originally this scene, as Sam says, always been around, but it was, I think originally it was an overhead projector. I think it, at one point it might've been a whiteboard, but then you went with this sort of VHS retro feel um, for it. And there's some great, again, graphics done by, uh, Ian Sargent and Chris Lunny for these. Oh yeah, the you know the heroes of of our piece, uh, Chris and Ian. No, um, I I think that <laughs> um, we originally had it, you know an overhead projector and things like that. A because there was kind of a cool aesthetic to that, and a lot of you know the film was always like uh, uh, set in an ab something abandoned, whether it be a warehouse or a theatre, and so there were the, these bits and pieces lying about, and also just for practicality. Um, I think that the idea was that an overhead projector would be easy to do and easy to, uh, you know, use. But actually, yeah. I think in practice it would have been a lot uh, more faff than just sticking some markers on a TV and then getting someone to do it later. Big, big time, big time. And also the, the trolley that the TV's on, I remember our producer having to fix that constantly because it was breaking. But if anything, that lent itself to its sort of shoddy presentation that William has here, because this is all about how, you know, this is meant to be some elite organisation, um, yet the, 
this is William presenting an old VHS copy. I think we had this idea pretty much that he's almost like that teacher that wills out the same uh, film uh, to show his students every time. But he's very proud of it still. He can't see that he hasn't really got with the times. Um, and that's why, as, as you can see, uh, Jay is finding this all very funny. Yeah. And uh, yeah, it reminds you of that, you know, when it was, uh, you know, uh, raining outside and, and, you know, the teacher would wheel in the, the old VHS to, to watch at, at um, break time or whatever. I uh, absolutely love the bit coming up in a minute with Preston and his knife when he swishes it around. But these are now our um, interrogation moments. So this is where we're sort of pressing the candidates on if they can sort of withstand police questioning and look believable when they're slowly being broken by the police to admit they did the the, uh, the crime. And you can see that uh, me and William don't, don't agree with this line of questioning, uh, which is already our first hint that I'm a, I'm a bit... I'm a bit pissed off with the way this is all done <laughs> i think also it's just a you know it's a really cool like backdoor way of getting to know our characters a bit more and uh understanding them you know because we've seen the dynamic between them but this is a time that we can get to know them individually and maybe start to chip away at why they're here or whether they're any good at this at all you know whether they can actually be mm. convincing or in you know uh, it, it just shows all their personalities and how they're reacting to the situation. And yeah, it's an interrogation scene yeah. for William and Ryan, but also for the audience. I think that's uh, what we're aiming for. Yeah, exactly. I mean, this is a great example because we see uh, L here just beautifully just do all that sort of monologue and then come at a character and lovely. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I just love that. She's just like, yeah, well, so was that? fine that you know amazing piece of acting also it, i think it's very hard to act you can speak to this luke but to act acting if that makes sense yeah yeah you can you can easily overdo yeah. that so you know and but and that's why she's fantastic and then obviously uh jay has a very a different idea but uh preston we're about to see is almost doing the overacting acting because of his character because he is so desperate to 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 please, um, but this is a, a fantastic bit of Jay. Also, I I believe he actually was drinking. What is that? Is that like really bad? Okay, so like, like the set designers, uh, or you know the the art department, which is Chris Knight and his assistants, uh, they had set up this um, crime scene in the first week, and we didn't get to doing uh, the guys looking round. Uh, the crime scene to get familiar with it until the last week or something and they put in some cordial to look like some wine and it had you can probably spot this but it had discolored to the point of being pink and so it sat there yeah. for a week because it was kind of like you know you know we were just throwing kind of dust sheets over it and making sure that no, no one touched it and so he these guys were just improving around the place i had a little chat with them about how they were going to explore the scene and we wanted to make it so that they all did it kind of differently as uh, you know so uh l lydia she's kind of walking around and being quite sensory about it and preston he's being very like you know playful and then jay's just kind of taking it very not so seriously and then you know blaine who yeah. plays jay just went and drank a bit of the old cordial 
That's some dedication. I, I have to. I, I love this uh, skull at yeah. the back. That was there. We didn't actually move that. That was just there the whole time. We just time. lit it. Um, <laughs> yeah. Ah, so here we have our uh, our fourth candidate, or is it our fourth candidate? Um, the answer is no. <laughs> And this is something that obviously uh, we did a lot at the start where we played on the idea that I am effectively almost like the work experience kid where uh, Rich and well, William, should I say, being the big cheese, always looks to me to do the, uh, the crappy jobs. And uh, so does Mo. Uh, so this is a thing you, you often hear Mo go, you do it. And so I always have to be the one to do all the, do all the gritty, annoying jobs no one else wants to do, such as unfurl a, a sack from a crazy woman and yeah because we wanted to have the you know this this part of the film be quite you know funny um uh, we wanted i wanted to get in like these little gags it's kind of like as you say like you know ryan is just a tea boy you know you've got to do everything but also in these kind of extenuating strange circumstances and we had a lot of uh, ideas with actually uh, bringing M in and i think one thing we can say is that originally she was coming in a lot later into a the script a lot later and a lot bigger right yeah and we realized we had to get her in earlier start disrupting this flow of williams much much sooner and that's why we uh, she's pretty much in straight after the candidate's first interviews yeah because we wanted to condense it up and kind of establish the world as quickly as possible, but then also bring it in as a, now this is going to rock the world that we very quickly have learned about. Um, I don't, I didn't think that we needed too much time to, to uh, uh, establish ourselves. Yeah, we, it, it buzzes along quite quickly as well, um, you know, and we, there's still many opportunities to get to know the candidates. Um, so we knew we could bring in M. And have her, you know, as as we see soon, she initially sort of sits back and just watches. But just knowing she was there was key for us now, that she was witnessing William's uh, idea of how to run this uh, criminal audition. And uh, you could see him sweat, such as right now. Yeah, and also, uh, you know, to be quite candid, I was petrified of people being bored. So I just didn't want to, you know, linger too much. I wanted to get on with, with the film and, and not be too... Um... Uh, you know, lackadaisical and just kind of get into the meat of the story as quickly as possible. Yeah, and and and, and Rich, he's so good at this sort of. Um, he's he's kind of uh, torn between being very congenial and also wanting to reprimand Ryan, and but also he knows that she's totally unhinged. So he's 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 great at having this sort of scared anger. Yeah, uh, just 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 what constantly what have I got myself into? But no, this is what I'm doing. He wants he wants to be the best. He wants to have the best party, but is aware that the party is constantly fraying at the edges. I think that's um, what we um, this scene definitely. I think I can't remember who whether it was all you guys I spoke to about about it, but it was definitely like oh, this is like you know an awkward moment at a dinner party. You know, you're just, you're trying to be mm, the best yeah. host, but there's two people who are completely opposite, and you just you want to be as uh, congenial to both and suck up to one, and yeah. And this is uh, uh, our our actual fourth candidate, uh, B, 
uh, Jonathan was absolutely fantastic because I, I think uh, he had, uh, for those who don't know, this obviously this film took years and years to put together. And uh, when we initially cast Jonathan as B, his role was actually a lot bigger. And uh, by the time we got to film this five or six years later, um, he had a lot less to do, sadly, but he was absolutely fantastic on set. He's got a lot of physical uh, acting to do later on as well. And he was always a pleasure when he came on set. Yeah, he, he, he was great. And especially, you know, sitting there with a bag on your head can't be that enjoyable. And uh, <laughs> yeah, he, he, had, he was always up for it. And yeah, and you know, I, I, I didn't get to talk to everybody so, so much. We were so pushed all the time. And really it was just because whoever was in the film more, I got to spend more time with because we were actually doing more scenes with them, you know. There wasn't a lot of sitting around and yeah. chatting. And we just saw a really lovely transition now. I love that when we, we've just met Cameron, um, our actor, uh, who's playing Morris. And I love his line, uh, we're here to shake things up a tad. And then it cuts to Rich asking, Miss Mizem, uh, shake things up how? And it's just a lovely sort of cut to keep, again, pushing along very forward. It also connects the characters because, you know, Ms. M has used the, uh, the same terminology as, uh, as Morris. They're both here to shake things up, and, but we don't see that. I like those little moments like that. Um, yeah, they've, they've come here with a definite script. And it and also establishes the fact that, you know, we're in a you know, small... I wanted to feel like we're in this small space where, um, you know... Uh, things are very connected. So if we make these two characters connected and almost saying the same thing at the same time, it's almost like William can hear Morris say it, but he's actually heard Ms. M say it. And she's fantastic in that scene. And like when he... Oh yeah, like she just completely establishes exactly why they're here and what's going on. And his little... uh, William's little look over the shoulder is also a little nod to, you know... Anybody can be around the corner in this uh, in this derelict theatre, you know. Anybody can be listening to your to your conversation, and also it just shows that Morris is actually pretty dangerous, and here he is to to <laughs> do that, say that again. First off, I remember this scene and doing it enough times that I kept having to fill up the syringe and squirt it back in, and the the back and forth there. But um, yeah. Morris is so wonderful as a character here. Um, and it is, uh, he's got a lot of praise, Cameron, because he's just so cool and calculated. And I remember him being on set after every take. He always wanted to see what else he could strip back. He wanted to be so precise and, and not oversell lines. He was just very, very methodical uh, in how he wanted to, to be. And it, it comes across brilliantly here. He was also a really generous uh, performer. He would often come up to me in, in a scene uh, that he was not on. It wasn't his side. We weren't shooting on his side. And he would say to me, what can I throw at uh, Luke here just to kind of throw him off and make it cool? And yeah, he had always had great ideas there. And, and it wasn't a big uh, uh, show of him doing that. It would always be like a, a quiet word with me. It wasn't, you know... Oh, how can I help others? He really genuinely wanted to help. And that, that's, that's what a great actor does. And also, as, as he does his monologue here, um, we should actually speak about the music, which obviously is, we've already heard quite a lot of already. 
Um, but Acer, Acer and Al um, put together this great soundtrack, this very Western-inspired soundtrack. And as, uh, as you can probably hear now, as Cameron tells his story, as Morris tells his story, we can even hear that they've included sounds of a kettle boiling because uh, he's obviously speaking about pouring cups of tea down people's throats. Yeah, I mean, that's... Uh, we wanted to have a kind of a unique moment uh, of uh, torture in there. And uh, we also wanted to establish his character, kind of his background. You know, he mentions a lot about uh, boarding school and things like that. And so we get a real sense of, you know, he's not just wearing the tweed for show. He's actually from an aristocratic background. And This was uh, such a cool scene because I, I love stuff. So I love that we've got needles, we've got headsets, uh, we've got this ghetto blaster we're about to see. Me and me and Mo in aprons, the handcuffs. There's just there's just a lot of stuff, and I love it. And uh, just uh, just for people wondering, because I did get a comment on the on the prop of the ghetto blaster, it is my father's, um, and I'm sure he'd want me to mention that as well, since he constantly wants uh, credit for being prop master for supplying the ghetto blaster. Yeah, it's great as well. I love all this old old gear that we found and I, I wanted to, it to have a sense of that it could be set in any time, uh, well, any time in the last 30 years or whatever. Um, and, you know, the fact that we, you know, there is later a mobile phone, but it's not a smartphone. And then we've got these old uh, bits and pieces, analog gear and just a, a kind of a timeless feel. There's a little uh, Easter egg there as well that I think the shot of Miss M and, and Cameron uh, Morris, uh, the legs of uh, B aren't actually the legs of the actor at that point because I think we used a runner because I don't think we had Jonathan no, in that did, day. we did and I specifically made sure we applauded the knees uh, for... Because <laughs> he, he came in, uh, Jack was his name, the runner, and he, he, he didn't yeah. think that's what he was in for that day, I don't think. And so he... He had, I think he had makeup on his knees and, uh, yeah, fantastic. Great, great yeah, knee yeah, acting, I mean, great knee acting. I totally believe the knees. I remember, uh, so this is Rebecca Calienda who plays Elle and so, so fantastic. She loved that line, by the way, signed by the mayor. She used to just constantly uh, shout it at me after. Uh, in her dizzy drug-induced yeah, state. I remember in uh, rehearsals, it was even more uh, shouty and crazy. And for, for the actual tape, she dialed it down. But um, during rehearsals, it was like a lot of fun. It was. I think this is, as you said, this is a great scene because we get to know everyone's uh, sort of like characteristics from the candidates. Um and particularly, I always find Jay so interesting because we've already established that he's actually more intelligent than you would expect him to be. I think we always talked about how he seems like your classic chav or stereotype and then he constantly breaks them. But it doesn't mean he still can't uh, be playful and have fun, which uh, is what he shows here. Yeah, definitely. We wanted to, you know, all the characters kind of have a a little revelation about them. You know, Mo and, uh, you know, is... is monosyllabic for a lot of the time but he's got a lot more going on than you think and and in fact in counterpoint to that William always has a lot to say and might not have so much going on 
I do enjoy that we managed to get, because uh, I uh, have experience of being an accountant, I do enjoy that we got to mock accountancy so so wonderfully here. Yeah. And uh, it's just great to, uh, this is another chance for them to be a bit looser and say what they feel and what they want and also just a, a, a moment of chaos that uh, William has to try and wrangle and he's not very good at it. I do enjoy, you know, just watching this back now, you know, uh, for those who are not aware, um, I wrote a criminal audition in 2009 as a short play, made it into a feature film, a feature play in 2011. And we sort of came full circle because when we first adapted this into a screenplay, me and Sam, you know, we it wasn't originally in a theatre, you know, it got pushed out, got put in a warehouse, derelict this, derelict that. And I do enjoy that we've come full circle. We ended up filming in a theatre and I love the idea of these candidates being on stage and the, the sort of rich, the money men uh, on the seats, commenting, judging, picking apart their performances on stage. There's something just so fantastic about it. Yeah, I, I think that, um, you know, all these things kind of always come back round in some kind of weird way. But it is such a good setting for for this uh uh, story because they're performing to the world and they're they're, they're being told that they're going to have to perform on a, on a bigger stage than this and if they can't perform on this stage with a few people in the room mm. then they're no good it has fantastic links and I have to say uh, uh shout out to Nolene because I, I I believe uh, I don't know if that was was Ben expecting uh, her to lick lick his lips. Ben wasn't. Uh, <laughs> I, I knew that that was going to happen uh, because Nolene did ask, shall I just do that? Because I, I just remember Nolene being very much in that moment, like she hit the stride. She was in the zone of Miss M. You know, when you're first shooting, you're kind of finding mm. where you are. And all these guys are fantastic actors, you know, from a standing jump. But when they all got got into their roles I, I remember knowing like the moments where that happened and that was the moment that that happened with Nolene was that she was really having fun and lo obviously loved the character Mo says it's safe and there's, there's a wonderful end to this scene uh, th I, I think this is where we really get to know Mo's kind of uh well, deadpan, but also uh, clearly he's not always on William's side and just kind of goes along with it in this scene. And it also shows that there's not just such an established, uh, you know, power in, in this relationship. You know, it's it's not all, uh, you know, bound up so neatly. Um, you know, Moe's here probably for the money and there's another effect shot of the... Of the red flash. Yeah. Count them. <laughs> Count those effect shots. Um, so these things uh, between you three guys were some of the most fun to do because it was like, oh, well. you know, they were kind of like filming like office uh, workplace scenes, you know, and everybody kind of arguing around a water cooler or something. And, uh, well, as you said, that's what we were going for, right? This is just the way we wanted to, this not to be this fancy organisation that organises crimes, but rather this kind of thing that's done out of the back of a shop, done out of the, you know, in a derelict building with 
very, you know, you've just got William, who's a bottom draw lawyer. You've got Mo, who he's background in fixing. Is he, is he actually that great? Or is he just, just making it up as he goes along? There's something so wonderfully, uh, you know, they're not, they're not all senior accomplished individuals, put it that way. Yeah, and I think it probably reflects kind of a shared worldview that we have, which is like, you know, pretty much no one knows what they're doing regardless of what level they're at. Yeah, I think that's a good way of putting it. You know, everybody's scared. Everybody uh, doesn't necessarily know what they're doing. They're kind of making it up as they go along. And and that's what makes things interesting, I think. Yeah, I mean, definitely. Uh, You know, uh, for me, that I have lots of imposter syndrome. And I think that definitely uh, speaks in this script. And here we are. We're just getting to now know a bit more of an insight into Elle, that she's actually here with a child at her, who's been taken away from her. Um, and she, and I, I really like this idea that she's come to the criminal audition because she's pretty much given up on herself, but wants to get the money to give to her child, even though she won't see her again. And it's, it's, a, it's a, a great thing that I think gets overlooked a bit too much. Yeah, it's, it's kind of heavy stuff because we've got a lot of other bells and whistles and things going on in the film and, you know, the, the dark comedy in it, etc. But this is a real kind of, real tearjerker when you think about it and um it's also you know she's a young person and she feels like her life's over and I'm sure that's something that a lot of people have felt you know early in their life and regardless of what situation they're in and you know Ryan tries to you know tell that her that here because he's kind of done the same with his yeah he's starting to really sort of uh link up with her and see that she's in a position that maybe he was in when he got drawn into the criminal audition process by William. Um, and obviously it's coming out of confrontation now because Elle just doesn't understand. She just wants to get this done. I love the music oh, well, here the as well. The music's outstanding throughout. <laughs> and obviously what uh, Elle says here is uh, one of our themes stated I remember thinking here that she was getting so much in my face but I was like do I step back and I was like I'm not going to step back well you've stepped out of focus so that would have been annoying (laughs) (laughs) Uh, hey look like all good actors I would have expected the, the focus puller and everyone to follow me well okay then I love, I, sorry, I love Cameron here. <laughs> oh, gosh, yeah. <laughs> Look at that smile. And lovely lighting. Shout out to Damien yeah, Gray. Yeah, I mean, I just love all these visible lights and, you know, that's one of the advantages we had for lighting with Rich Osborne, our DOP, and Damien, as you say, our, our gaffer light. We could have a lot of fun with, you know, the, the work light that's on the right here and uh, and those uh, fluorescent tubes hanging down. Because it was a derelict uh, location, we could just put all these visible in shot and, and, and make it feel... Uh, I mean, me and Richard, we'd shot a film uh, uh, just before this, uh, a short film, which was a period film, and there were so many light bulbs in it like vintage light bulbs, etc. So we had a lot of... We were in our light bulb phase at this time, I think. And uh, this actually, here's a little tidbit, is my favourite scene in the whole film. And 
I love it because funny enough, we were just talking about how heavy the, the L scene was just then. But I think this is absolutely just so sad um, uh, because essentially um, Jay is about to commit to phoning his mum and making up that he has just killed someone. And just the idea of that and uh, the detachment of them not being face to face with his mum, but just calling her on the phone briefly to tell her. And I think everything, everything from Blaine's acting, the the actual uh, phone call itself, um, and the music is just, and just the idea of what he's doing, you know, the pressure he's being put under to try and prove himself um, so he can pass this test. Um, and you just make me think what, is, what has happened in his life to bring him to this point where he feels like this is his only option. Yeah, and it's, it's one of the, it's the scene that slightly breaks our rule of that um, we're actually contacting the outside world and uh, it's seeping in a little bit. And also uh, a little fun fact, that phone belongs to our editor, Mike Pike. And uh, I think one of the one of his secrets to being a successful film editor is don't have a smartphone, don't get distracted, just <laughs> keep on the editing. I like it. I remember this being at the premiere and this line getting plenty of laughs. Good old Scott as Mo. Yeah. Here it comes. One of our proudest moments. <laughs> I love how just, because um, a lot of people have mentioned this, it's, he's such a strange character because he is essentially doing very terrible things and fixing things for other people and, and you know, uh, preventing the justice system from working properly. But Mo is just someone that's just so endearing and warm and strange. I also think we could, we can't overlook um, uh, that moment where that comes uh, that culminates in the uh, I'm Mo moment. Moment is um, when uh, Morris says, you know, oh, because everybody that's your name, is it? And everybody's telling the truth, and we can be sure of everything, mm. can we? And I just liked that having that in there that we we have really established ourselves in the film, and and now it's it's kind of well everything you've learned in the last nearly 40 minutes uh, might not be true. Even the names of the characters. Yes. Yeah. And I think that's yeah. something we talked about, right? Is that, you know, William's name isn't William, ultimately. Um, he clearly uh, goes by a completely different persona, but um, on the outside world, away from this. Oh, I love Blaine here. Yeah. So fantastic. Yeah, because there's there's some real proper acting in this film. Because all these guys are so talented, <laughs> and that's what we've been uh, hearing a lot. You know, uh, after the film come out in uh, reviews, etc., is how good all the performances are. We're so proud of what these guys did you know, working under such a uh, tight shooting schedule, but to put in and get all those key moments we wanted, all those little uh, glances and subtle looks, um, really fantastic. And I think we've got a lot of praise for having such eccentric and different characters, all with different objectives and aims and goals, and all of them quite surprising. As we said, Jay isn't just uh, a, a silly, slightly lacking in education individual. He's, he's the absolute opposite. He's someone who could have been someone so terrific, but he's clearly just got on the wrong side of tracks on a few things. Um, 
So it's a really, really great cast. Also, I think that, um, you know, earlier I was saying, you know, I was petrified of people getting bored, so we get really into it, and it was a very kind of jaunty, etc. And, and And this scene, we've, you know, it is quite a long scene, and we are taking time to really feel the impacts of the reality of what they these people could be actually going through. So it's that kind of, yeah, we've had our fun, and now this could be, like, really serious. Yeah, and, that, and funny enough, this is exactly what I really love about this film now, is that we ended up with a film that, as we've spoken about a lot before, starts out quite jovial. There's a lot of jokes. There's a lot of things at William's expense. He's, he's, he's crappy VHS presentation, the odd jokes about the hoods and all that kind of stuff and the interview techniques. But as we can see now, this is starting to get a lot darker and deeper. And we can see William is actually now finding out that, uh, yep, they've got someone close to him. Um, and suddenly I, I remember watching this in the cinema at the premiere. And I just remember thinking, this is such a, uh, not a huge jolt genre change, but it slowly seeps in that this is not going to be as a, a straightforward black comedy here. We're going to start to have some quite horrific, thrillery things happen. And that's what we changed from the play. Whereas the play was a farcical comedy, this starts out as maybe maybe a black comedy, uh, you know, making light of this very surreal world we've built. But ultimately, this world, we wanted to be like, no, no, these people are serious criminals and they've come with a serious plan. And uh, as we're about to see, this scene, which is, um, I, I'm guessing, probably one of our longest scenes, is um, absolutely brutal. It is, you know, in the biggest sense, of the, the actual sense of the word, quite pivotal in the film. That last scene with uh, William and Ryan, though, yeah. amazing lighting. I love the lighting in that scene. This scene actually was quite interesting because, well, from my perspective, when I was watching it... Um, at the premiere and we had this packed Prince Charles uh, in Leicester Square Theatre and I sat at the back and I just knew this is a scene that is going to change a lot of people's um, opinions of what they think they're watching. Um, because I, I would imagine people watching this for the first time are like, so is there going to be some sort of comedy punchline at the end? How are they going to stop? You know, I can just imagine people going, is this really going to go this way? Yeah, and also uh, we can just a little... Uh you know, uh, style change here is that this is the first time in the film that we are handheld with the camera. Um, because up until this point, we've mm. been quite stagey and uh, static. And we wanted to say, you know, quite literally, uh, you know, you know, all, all bets are off. So we're off the, off the stick. Off the rails. And, yeah. Yeah, exactly. And, and, and we're moving about and, uh, and, uh, our DP Richard Osborne, he uh, he operated every shot in this film, and after this point, there's there's a fair amount of uh, handheld, and he he did great. I remember thinking uh, when I was sat there on my little step, because that's mostly what I do in this scene. Um, I was just like, how are we going to capture all this? Being such a on a tight schedule, an indie film, you know, we only shot all this in fifteen days. How are we going to capture? Because there was so much bits to capture here. And obviously that's helped by the ha having the handheld camera. But it was just so many things we needed to see. I was like, oh, how is this going to come together in the edit? Also, this is, a, um, I spoke earlier about uh, Rebecca, uh, who's Lydia, um, you know, playing up in the rehearsal and then toning it down for the actual performance. This was the other way round, where in the rehearsal, Blaine was great, but he'd, he really saved his energy. 
And so he really, it mm. was harrowing when we actually went for a take. And Richard did keep up with him operating. Oh. And uh, mm. I remember Rich, uh, we finished the take and Rich came over and he said, well, I think that was pretty good. <laughs> and a uh, little shout out to Amy Turnbull, who did the uh, the finger work there. We just saw a very quick glance of uh, Bee's finger cut off on the floor. Yeah, really great effects um, with the limitations that she had. Yeah, I mean, people have to understand, uh, you know, because we were working on such a budget, not only that, but also the time um, to, to make sure all this was in place and, and ready. Um the, as much as we were never sort of uh, overly stressed on shoot in the sense that the the atmosphere wasn't bad in the sense of, oh my God, we've got so many shots to do, that that was always in the back of everyone's minds that we had to still still somehow get through them all in this day. And uh, but fantastic that everyone worked so well under under that kind of uh, notion in the back of everyone's minds. I think these were when we shot the most in, in single days. I, I remember we had a day yes. where we'd done about 40 slates, which is, you know, Every time we essentially moved the setup, we did that 40 times, and that doesn't even mean that we only did one shot from that setup. In fact, we had to do multiple shots from every setup to actually uh, achieve it, and that must have been one of these days. And they were, they were, they were tough. You're absolutely right. It was. Uh, I can remember it very vividly, as you can imagine, me and my producer, producer hat. Um, and here's, here's the moment that I thought, oh, uh, how's everyone going to find this bit in the cinema? Um, and it's, it's such a fantastically twisted moment. And I have to say, uh, do, do have a watch of uh, Nolene as, as she goes through this because you can see so much emotion on her face. A uh, couple of visual effects shots there, but you can see uh, as we learn more about her character in this film, I think it really plays to her letting out the anger um, of what her character has probably held on to for many years, as we will discover later on in the uh, the film. Look at that. There we go. <laughs> That's the thing, is that it was cool that even though we we were pivoting and we had a very violent scene, a murder, in fact, that it, it was rooted in something emotional. And it, was, and it may seem like, you know, she's just having a bit of, you know, morbid fun, but actually there is something really underlying here. And unfortunately, poor poor old Preston. Poor Preston, he's out. I think that's something you've actually spoken about a lot, how, um, you know, when the violence does happen, it happens uh, for, for a reason. It's not just uh, thoughtless. And when you find out more about her and why she's doing this, suddenly uh, a lot of this and her emotions make absolute perfect sense. Yeah. And yeah, we wanted it to happen quickly and brutally and not just for time and economics, as we've been talking a lot, but also just for impact and uh, showing consequential violence, I, I think is more responsible. And uh, just a mention of, of Envis in that shot, you might have seen a very, uh, very few quick shots there of blood splatter coming up uh, and hitting uh, Nolene, Ms. M, in the face, and uh, Envis added those in in post. We actually tried... We actually tried on set, didn't we? We had our makeup artist underneath Nolene spritzing blood, uh, but it was very difficult to actually make sure that it was yeah, it was very uh, hard visible on the camera. On that on camera, and then this scene, this post uh, uh, murder, Preston's murder scene, um, 
you know, this was shot really early on, maybe the first day of the shoot. And so we were, you know, playing out the consequences of something pivotal that we hadn't yet done. Am I right in thinking, Sam, that this was the moment where in our colour grade, we actually came back and you'll notice that no longer the walls aren't as red as they were in the initial um, exchanges. And now it's a lot darker and everything's closing yeah, in a bit more. the light bulb becomes almost more the centre of the room than the walls, if that makes sense. Uh, things are closing in and, yeah. and, you know, kind of arguing around the light bulb and that kind of... Yeah, as I said before, me and Richard, we were in our light bulb face. <laughs> yeah. It's a good face to be in. But yes, we did. You're right. The, the grade made us darken uh, everything around them, and it's like things are closing in on them, and it's not so uh, hunky dory anymore. We very much worked with the idea that the second Nolene commits this murder, um, Ms. M, that the mood and everything has changed. So you'll notice that the grade is a little darker, as Sam just said, but even, even just the, the, the way the characters are, you know, there's no, there is some more black humor in the second half of this film. Um, but it's, it's not as frequent and it's certainly not as, uh, you know, the process is no longer looked at as, um, jovial, um, as we're about to see in this scene where I go to visit the uh, two remaining candidates. Um, they pretty much know that this isn't going to be the only person murdered tonight. So, Things have suddenly got a little bit Also, dangerous. I suppose we were talking about the change of tone there and it quite literally is shown visually with all the lights flickering and, you know, we've established it's an old building that could just be happening, you know, naturally. But it, it's almost like her actions has completely changed the world that we're in. There we go. So you can see that it's sort of dawned. And what I really love about this scene is um, my character's at this point where clearly I haven't seen this sort of thing happen before. Um, this is not how criminal audition is meant to go. Um, and I try to convince both of them that, you know, get out of this. But as we see, again, this is what's so sad about this whole process and how William finds these people and convinces them that this is the only way, only sort of solution for them is that both uh, L and J are about to tell me to sod off because they're determined to win. So what? how, how dark have, have their lives got where they can see what they've just seen and say, yep, yeah, more of that, please. But it was also, uh, you know, playing with the audience expectation that, you know, people will band together now that this happened. Surely there's, you know, good in the world. And they're both like, no, it's competition, isn't it? You know, he's gone and that means there's, uh, we're closer to the prize. Yeah, and that's that's what's uh, obviously, you know, something we spoke about a lot. Suddenly we're bringing in this very much more horrific X Factor style, you know. If you don't pass the next test, you could be on the chopping block. Um, and that's one of the things we really wanted to to, to get the audience into because obviously we're, we're, we, we want to put all these serious themes in, but we know we want to make quite a, a fun and interesting film and having this kind of layout that you now know that there's going to be challenges and if you fail that you might be next um plays into a lot of other films that have sort of followed suit in these kind of things um whether that be uh, saw or even battle royale or something like that where it's almost these games with uh, hideous consequences yeah and it also gives a sense of um you know it, it's like a ticking clock isn't it 
uh, we didn't have uh, in the narrative, we don't have yeah. a physical thing where it's, um, I mean, we do have where we say that the building's going to be demolished tomorrow. So they have to get this all done in a night and probably for reasons of, you know, evading the law, etc. But it does um, give it yes. a sense of, um, you know, right. So this is going to end when no one's left. And this is another great one uh, I love about uh, Mo as a character, where you suddenly learn that he's just here to do his job and get home. And I, you know, I imagine this is one of those things where he's like, the money's good. I just do this for enough years and I can support my family and get out of here. And it's just a little tidbit um, and a little more sort of like looking into Mo, as you said, there's, there's more to him than we uh, initially think. Yeah. And it's, it's sort of a twisted version of, you know, having a father figure or, I mean, Mo's kind of like uh, the Obi-Wan to your Luke, really. Uh, but he uh, <laughs> he's kind of telling him, don't, you know, fight for the good cause. Work smart, not don't work harder, you know? Yeah, and, and, and because I think he gets it, he knows that the clients and this organisation are, are, are terrible and everything going on is terrible. Um, there's just no point, as you say, fighting for these causes here because nothing is... is is wonderful or rosy here. And, and nothing I think he knows, nothing I, I, my character Ryan can do here will make anything better. But that's the idealism of, of, of Ryan. And uh, this is going to be tested right here, really. We're really putting Ryan on the spot. And I think it's interesting that we, you know, like a lot of films, uh, we can't necessarily, unlike other films, we can almost interrogate our lead character. Uh, I really like this idea that, and, and this is a really pivotal scene, actually, and I'll, I'll point out why in a few moments when the scene plays out. I do like, as we were talking about, one of the things that we filmed all this in underneath Waterloo Station in a theatre called Network Theatre. And uh, because we've obviously filmed it in a theatre, it meant we could rig the lights up on the scaffolding and it meant that they were set for, for all the whole time. And so we had such a great flexibility with all our lighting and that really helped us get the shoot done in such an efficient manner. Um, and here's me passing the scalpel to, to B. Um, but one thing I just wanted to say about this scene in particular, and it is more towards the end, but do pay attention again to, to Nolene, Ms. M, because again, we're going to see something that once you know everything happened that happens in this film, once you watch it back and see that she's having this lovely grin and smile at me, there's something so much more about what she's enjoying there. I was just going to say, I love the way uh, Cameron pulls out this needle in such a, it's the way he sort of flicks it up. Um, it's just such plays into his character. Yeah, all, all Cameron's idea as well, actually. I remember when we had a, more of a budget, we had this much more... Uh, chase scene envisaged where B would be running around the halls of the theatre and Morris is trying to catch him up and the drugs are slowly taking hold and he's getting more and more uh, paralysed. Um, but we obviously have this awful moment here where, again, I just, I just think if you really have a, a good old think about this, this is him on stage slowly 
sort of uh, in, having this induced drug overdose um, in front of everyone. It's it's just so um, so you know as we talk about Big Brother and we talk about X Factor, it's just so on display that it's just very very it um, the, unnerving. The, the tone that we ultimately went for, um, as opposed to a big chase sequence, there's some kind of hope in that. Whereas this is just devastating. Absolutely. And uh, and again, it's Ryan trying to be a hero and the world telling him heroes don't exist. And this is something we actually talked about a lot, how we always try to sort of ask ourselves, well, can Ryan not just jump in here? Can But you've got to understand the difficulties he's got is... Morris is a cold-blooded killer who's got so much precision. He knows William's not going to back him up because William's just after the money. Ms. M is just an absolute wild card. So it's it's just, he's just stuck. He's just absolutely yeah, and stuck. you're quite literally rooted to the spot here. I think that was one of my favourite favorite shots in the film where we kind of move in on you and closing your eyes. Oh uh, yeah, I think I think that you're talking about the one coming in in a second. Yeah, this because I think it really hammers home. Just like oh, for fuck's yeah. sake, <laughs> it has a it has a real energy to it, and it's almost like a like a scream. You know, like Ryan's really insular mm. there and doesn't say anything, and that's kind of lined up with everybody else not doing anything, not helping, just thinking that's the way of the world or or unless it's what they wanted to happen. And, and that's kind of like almost like a, an inner scream from Ryan. And here we have a moment that you were talking about earlier where Morris repeats a line that Mo said to me only around five minutes ago uh, about always have a backup plan. Yeah, so it, show, it shows that, you know, people are listening. And that, you know, no one is safe in this building. If you feel like you can have a secret conversation, you absolutely can't. Because uh, that's what will happen. <laughs> um, and then here we go. We should see a Ms. M's uh, reaction here after William uh, has his little comedy line. And if we just watch here, so this is what I mean. If you, you watch it in context later, there's so much that uh, Nolene adds to this um, because she has something more about me that she wants to get across. I remember that moment with uh, with William as well. Rich delivered it so well that I think there was a bit of miscommunication at one point and that not everybody knew we were going for a take. And... Uh, and uh, yes, I think you're right. Everyone laughed in the crew, and and so that was a good sign. Except it was a you know it was a waste of a take. But I, uh, as we were saying earlier, when whenever uh, we got me and Scott and Rich in a room, I I love this scene. This is one of my favourites because it is me putting putting my cards down on the table, and Mo's involved just on the, in this on the side as me and me and Rich go at it. And that was the other thing about making it feel like that, you know, they were being watched and listened into no matter what, was that we could have these scenes where they break out and kind of chat to each other. Um, but it's still, there was something looming over all of it always. 
And we should probably speak a bit about how we even put this together, because I think, um, you know, even that in itself is just such a bizarre story. I mean, the idea that, as I said earlier, adapted this from a, a play in 2011. And, um, you know, me and Sam have been working on this from 2014, right way up in now, 2020, and it's only just come out. And we didn't get to shoot it until only a few years ago. Lots of funding issues, trying to get money together. Um, and it was a real sort of like thrill because some of these actors, such as uh, uh, Scott Moe, who's next to me in this scene, were cast in 2014. So he was waiting for years to play Moe. And it was such a relief to finally get everyone together to be able to bring out these characters that had been on paper for, for, for so many years and see them actually brought to life in, in funny and tragic ways. Yeah, it is really easy to overlook that when we're watching this and we're kind of watching our, our work and how it turned out. But, you know, the, the, there, there was so many times that we didn't think that we would actually even get to the point that we were shooting this and definitely not get to the point where we were doing an audio commentary on it. Uh, it's, it's, it's so bizarre. I remember my first day on set and just seeing so many crew members and actors and the, the, everything you always imagine a set to be, you know, you've got your second AD going, right, we need this person in makeup now, let's get... And all that, just the, 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 the hive of activity. And I just remember thinking, this can't be real. This can't be actually happening. We're actually doing this thing that we spoke about for so many years, all the different intricacies of it. Um, and even then I was like, well, there's something will go wrong. <laughs> the edit will well, go wrong. Well, speaking of that, actually, this scene in particular... I remember uh, when we did the first assembly cut, which, you know, I don't think is necessarily any secret, but if you don't know, your assembly cut of your film is always terrible. Um, and this scene was pretty much as it is now. And I remember thinking, at least we have one scene that is great and feels like a movie. I, I, I just remember thinking, wow, that was a scene. It feels like a movie, that. Yeah, I love this because obviously we see that Mo again, doesn't that care that much about Rich and William. He cares about his own people, as he said. And this is where we're really, you know, we're into the sort of end game now. Um, and we're starting to see, if you, if you haven't picked up on hints, that Ms M's character clearly has a lot more uh, reasons to be here than just trying to find a criminal to... Uh, well, a wannabe criminal to t take uh, her crimes off her. Um, there's there's a lot more going yeah, on. I think that the decision for that to have that uh, in the film, uh, the uh, the fact that there's more going on with her is that we had sat with the concept of this, which is a great concept. Is you know people put themselves up in kind of a almost a game show way to become criminals. We sat with that for so long that we kind of wanted to explore something else with it as well. Uh, what that could, how that could affect people, what would really happen and not sort of rest on the laurels of just that concept. Speaking of, you know, how many different versions we went over, I think me and Sam rewrote this script around 50 times, lots of different endings, lots of different, uh, moments for each characters. Um, a lot grimmer endings for certain characters as well um, than what happens in this film. And, you know, this is one of the things, and funny enough, just going back to actually making this, um, 
I know this is uh, it's such a bizarre thing to do, but we decided because this is how much of a, a of a you know cash strapped uh, manner we were working on. We knew we had enough money to shoot this. We didn't have the money to finish it in post, but we thought if we shoot this film. And as you said, Sam, you know, we just saw a scene there where you thought it looks like a film. It looks proper real. Um, then maybe someone out there will watch our assembly edits and our rushes and go, yeah, I'm going to give you the finishing funds to get this done. It was a massive gamble because we could easily be sat here right now still with uh, with just a very rough edit waiting for the finishing funds. But luckily enough, we uh, we were saved. Yeah, I love this scene as well with... Everyone, except for poor old Preston, although he is underneath yeah. the uh, cover. Um, I think it's B. Uh, it's B because of the drugs. I yes, think we have B under the covers, yeah. And uh, again, uh, I, obviously these are only little musical touches I'm pointing out because the actual wider score is... It should be appreciated. It's also on uh, Apple Music, Spotify, if you want to listen to the whole score. Um, but one of the things here you have is uh, Acer and Al have put in this sort of ticking time uh, uh, just behind uh, the music here because the pressure is definitely on because we've got a head-to-head. Yeah, and it's, it's also a great time to talk about the music because this is a, almost a, a very obvious um, staging of a sort of showdown like that you have in, in, in Westerns. And Western films and the soundtracks of them are obviously a heavily, heavy influence on the score. Yeah, as you say, we have a lot of uh, Mexican standoffs in this film um, and that's why that the score is so Western influenced. And we even have a few Blade Runner-y moments in um, and we even had earlier, we even had a bit of guitar, like that rock guitar for that drug-induced scene earlier. It's, it's such an eclectic sound. Oh, yeah, sound. it's multi-layered. It's not just, you know, Leone or whatever. It's it's that and, and so much more. And and it's totally unique for our film. And, you know, they, they created a, a an identity for the film in a way that elevated it beyond what we imagined, really. Something that we did here that I really love is I think in most, I don't know, maybe in most versions of the script, Lydia would have been the best. Lydia would have won. But I really like the idea here that Jay actually was the best. He was the one that should have won. Um, but instead, because of uh, the fact that Ms. M wants to play with me, um, she made me choose. And uh, I clearly chose with my eyes because I uh, clearly have the, I clearly have a thing for Lydia. Yeah, and I think as much as it may be a romantic uh, thing or link, it's also, I think that Ryan sees a lot of himself in her and him from a little while ago and he wants to, to fix her. I love this cut where she just says, I need to take a piss after everything that's happened. Um, and actually speaking of uh, being, you know, we were just speaking about, maybe it's romance, maybe it's more that he sees something in her because we've we've written a very sort of, anti-romantic story I suppose here and and this is one of the best examples because usually at this point in a film uh where you have a romantic link um it is the yeah the man and the woman uh have a moment where they're away from all the action and maybe they they bond over something and they might even kiss but here we have uh <laughs> we have Lydia actually just needing to take a piss 
but it, but we still have the same beats, such as them both opening up to each other, both discussing uh, things about their past and who they are. So it's a very interesting yeah, and, flip. Um, you know, you mentioned your your favourite scene earlier, and this is probably mine. Um, it's just how it came together. You know how we, you know, even from writing it and thinking about what would be the least romantic romantic scene ever, probably someone having to uh, squat and take a pee in a really bad situation but also I love the lighting here and 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 the fact that you know there's something about it that is very like a lament you know they both probably know that if they're in completely different circumstances they probably would be interested in each other but it's just not going to happen and uh you know, she she in the moment says to him, you know, I think that we had a line in an earlier version of the script where she says to him, you know, you haven't known me that long. You've known me for four hours, I think she said. And it's true that, you know, in a lot of films you have people and they've only just met and they fall in love. And it's not like that doesn't happen, maybe. But um, we just wanted to say, look, that's just not life. Yeah, we talked about a lot about how, look, these two characters are in a high pressure situation. And na- naturally, in those situations, you do, you know, fall on people a lot easier. But at the same time, as you've just said, there's no way this could work in the mayhem of what they're about to. You can see Ryan clearly wants something to work. I, as as we said, it could just be that he wants her to escape with him because he, he wants he doesn't want this to be happening to people again. But I think, as we see here, she knows better. She knows exactly where this is going and what this is. And, um, you know, she has some wonderful lines here where, I, again, I, I, I love them because they're so anti what you would expect, such as her basically saying, as she's about to say, you know, you're overestimating, overestimating me. Um, she believes she's, she's resigned herself to this path, which is a great testament to her character. She really stays the line. We don't change her just to fit this romance. Yeah, and also it's, you know, we're not just having a, a moment where a man fixes a woman. And, you know... Oh, yeah, no, that's that's the other thing about this scene is that the music's so beautiful and it's, it's very different to what we've heard previously and it kind of gives this mood of... Uh, this melancholy mood, really. And we even got that um, hip flask uh, monogram, didn't we? We got uh, yeah, we got MM on it. There we go. Yeah, because uh, we've never learned Morris's uh, surname unless Morris is his surname. I I actually just kind of enjoyed the fact that he was Morris. There's Ms M, and it just felt like everyone's M. <laughs> everyone's got an M. Yeah, we do have a lot of M's. I've got a great eye roll coming up here. Oh, there it is. <laughs> Not more options. It could be a reflection of where we were in the shoot as well. Here's a little Easter egg as well. Uh, William is about to say a line that says, a deal is a deal, um, which is uh, lifted straight from Fargo. When we sat down you know, after a lot of drafts of, uh, of this film that we 
you know, there was a version of this film that we essentially threw out. Um, and me and, and you, Luke, we, we sat down and we spoke about what, what films do we actually like? And I think one of the films that we connect on the most is Fargo. And uh, just how, you know, it just goes from bad situation to bad situation and, and people thinking they're doing the right thing and, you know, they're selfish and they're liars. And it just reflected all the things that we wanted to put into this film. So we did model uh, William a fair bit on William H. Macy's character in that film. The previous iteration had William down as a much more sophisticated, sharp lawyer who wasn't exactly running a mess as, as we're seeing uh, this William do. Um, and that's not to say this William can't do the job. I mean, as we mentioned, he's done it many times before. He's put people down for crimes they didn't commit. It's just, again, that fraying, the rough around the edges. The second he's put against someone who is serious business, such as Miss M, he clearly is in over his head. Yeah, and he really, the change in his character really represents the change in, in the versions of the films that we went through. And this is an interesting thing we did here, Sam. You want to speak a bit, bit, bit about this? Well, yeah, I've, I've, originally I wanted um, there to be a moment where we didn't really know the fate of, of Ryan um, and just have a little time where we weren't exactly sure that, you know, he'd even survived and that we would be ending the film with Ryan as our protagonist. Um, and uh, which would play along with what we were doing here absolutely and those moments just came from uh, from the idea that we couldn't just black it out and go to the next scene which we did have in a few cuts uh, but we thought we'd put these dreamy moments into it's maybe in the mind of Ryan but it's also in the mind of the audience reminding them what's happened a lot of the moments that have been said all the themes that we've established and just to kind of take a little break until we <laughs> hit the gas again, you know, in the, in this scene. This bit happening here actually speaks a lot what we talked about, about everyone always overhearing each other in a theatre because we have this great moment where Mo actually feels very confident because earlier we saw him take the bullets from uh, Morris's gun. But the beautiful thing about this, and this sort of shows that the way that Morris and Ms M are always going to win is that Morris knew about it. And this is the thing, is that they are, we now learn they are always in complete control here. And this is also uh, what a lot of people have protested against in the film is poor old Mo. Um, uh, we'll get to, back to Mo actually later on, but I have to say the man did a great job on lying on the floor because he's gonna, got a lot more lying on the floor later to come. Yeah. And then we do reveal that Ryan is staying with us for the rest of the film. Well, this is uh, one of those uh, great scenes um, in the film where we do suddenly, I, I mean, very much this scene and the next scene kind of peels back and twists and turns everything on its head of what we've been watching. Um, and we start to learn what all these tape recorders we've been seeing 
placed around uh, with those wonderful red dot visual effects um, are all, all about. Yeah, I mean, we can't have uh, Ryan place a recorder at the top of the film and not pay it off. But yeah, it, it shows that, you know, everybody's got a little side hustle going on in this film. I think when a lot of people watch this, they'll get swept up in just the, the, the main dramas. But again, this is another interesting thing that uh, Ryan says here about how even his family knew that he was actually a William Patsy in William's little game here. And his family have just decided, well, we get loads of money for that. And they've, they've effectively sold their son <laughs> um, uh, for just and taken the money and gone. So it's another very bleak moment. Again, it's so, it's so surreal to see. I mean, I, I, I know we spoke about earlier about how the journey that me and Sam have had in making this. Um, and, you know, even when we uh, did the post-production, you know, there's still so many questions you have. Like, uh, how, uh, is anyone going to take us seriously? Um, and funny enough, um, our, after our sort of private premiere, we uh, sort of wrote to several festivals, but very specific festivals, ones that we believed could really nurture and help us. And one of them was Fright Fest, and Fright Fest were so wonderful in allowing us to premiere at their festival um, under the first Blood Strand, which is for first yeah, time. Yeah, and that, I can't speak, you know, highly enough of, of the guys at Fright Fest and how nurturing and, and open and generous they are with their time and, and everything. And it's funny that um, at one point we didn't necessarily see this as a horror film. And, and you know, it may not be exactly what people think as a, you know, a horror film, but there's definitely elements in there. Mm. And, and it's funny because I am a lifelong horror fan, fanatic, and I didn't necessarily think that that's what I was making at the start. But it obviously bled in a lot in, in you know, figuratively and literally. A little bit of trivia there. That that woman in the photo is our first AD. And not only could this scene not have been without Alex literally being there, but also Alex was uh, so integral to actually keeping this really tight schedule moving. I remember looking at Alex during the shoot and just being so in awe of how she managed to stay calm uh, when where the time was constantly against us. Um, Fantastic scheduling and, and pushing people along when yeah, they needed I, to be I pushed. also personally, I think I've kind of had this weird, bizarre calm come over me and, and maybe that, that helped. But Alex was great at always, you know, asking the right questions of me and, and, and uh, Richard, our DP, and, you know, how, how uh, you know, were we going to achieve, achieve this ultimately? And it, it really wouldn't have happened without her. And this is something that I, I always quite liked in our script is as we have this twist where we find out that these guys, Ms. M, sister was killed and Ryan went down for the, for the crime. Uh, we really wanted to flip this on the heads and have the audience ask, well, these guys have a, just, a justified reason to be angry and 
wanting revenge. I mean, if we filmed this from Ms. M's pers- uh, point of view, this would be like a revenge film, like Taken, you know. She's, she's coming to, to, to hurt the people that took her sister from her in the yeah, most awful way. Yeah, exactly, and I think that's way. why it kind of is testament to the fact that, you know, we, we said, oh, is Ryan going to survive in, in an earlier part of the film? And, and actually, does he, you know, end up uh, the the protagonist of the film? And, and probably not. I mean, the film is a, a proper ensemble piece. We are just from Ryan's point of view. Um, and as you say, it could have been from any of these guys' point of view. We just happen to be from his. One thing to, to listen to is the music here, how it builds up as we flick back and forth between... I always thought, thought yeah. of these as the boss fights, Sam, uh, where we have this, this boss fight going on in this room, and then there's the other boss fight going on in the other room, and the music keeps... It almost sounds like a piston, this music, and it keeps like kicking and spluttering and getting yeah, louder and, and louder. Yeah, I think that it's going to get um, more intense than it does. And this is obviously uh, calling back to our uh, tea set up very soon because Morris is going to introduce his wonderful uh, uh, tea bags and, and uh, various... Uh... And we can't overlook Scott Samain in the background playing Moe's body. Yeah. He is Moe's body. And he laid there for so long. Yeah, laid there for so long while we sweated it out in front yeah. of him. And also had to lean on him. So it must, I can't imagine it was the most comfortable thing because I am leaning on him there because otherwise I've got, you know, it's, it's a very odd position I've been put in with, with Rebecca. Um, I remember this was, actually, uh, this was actually only day two we shot this on um, because, again, we had to shoot backwards. And I remember that being such a high intense thing to try and get yourself really ready for. Been through the other stuff, you know. You haven't a lot of the early scenes in the film are kind of getting to know you kind of scenes, and and you were straight in there with this stuff. That's why it was such a relief when it all came together and every character looked like they were in the you know the right order. Yeah, and and, and bizarrely, it did feel um, like it, even though it was backwards, we kind of did get our heads around it, and the actors did such a great job of understanding that it might have been a bit difficult but mm. did so well um we do have to mention angela there being soaked and she did have to replace some clothes yeah um some underwear actually <laughs> and it was lucky that we were right next to waterloo station this is a fact i only just found out recently that is because in in that uh, petrol can it's um cordial to give it just a little hint of a colour. Because even though gasoline is uh, clear, they do colour it, don't they? Um, just to make it visible, as it were, or discernible. And then we've had some steam added to tea there, just to make that visible as well. There's another visual effect shot. And uh, here's our little... Uh, this is why I always think Mo does come to the rescue in the end. Um, you know. <laughs> I also really liked going, you know, playing really hard into having uh, flashbacks look like flashbacks uh, as opposed to just kind of cutting in in a very yes. tasteful way. I kind of liked kind of having this dreamy kind of over the top 
flashbacks. I remember this just being such a, a, a brutal thing to think about boiling hot tea going going down someone's gullet. Um, this, I have to say, this was, uh, as you can imagine, this was probably the hardest day of shooting for me because it was so uncomfortable on the floor and it had to it, uh, sort of get this such intensity and, yeah, very, very bizarre. And then, obviously, we have the, uh, the razor coming into play as well and I, I kept thinking I was going to not hit the spot on that as well. and Yeah, because it was, you know, it was playing with visual effects and... Yeah, I suppose that's it. It's when you've got so many different components that come in after and you don't know how it's going to look. On It's a lot clearer when you're doing like a simple two shot or something, for instance, but this just felt so much more, oh, I hope this comes out well. And That's the thing. There's so many cogs and wheels going on and it always feels like it's on your shoulders at the time. But there, there are so many other great people helping you make it look great. There's a little interesting tidbit. Is this sort of scene and all these conversations originally took place at William and uh, Adeline's home or Adeline's home uh, in the early, early versions of the script with Ms. M coming to them in their very home to uh, basically shake their world. Better because now they're on the stage having to be interrogated and and perform in a way that, you know, answer to their, totally. to their crimes, which is exactly what the candidates have been trying to do, except they've actually committed some real crimes. Yeah, totally. And she just said it herself, you know, you didn't want to get your hands dirty, but now they're the ones, as you say, on display. And I think I, I always saw that... Um, looking back at all the other kills as Ryan finally going, they've done all this stuff. I need to get some kind of bravery here because he is, he is quite wimpy through the film. And I think that was it. It was him remembering all the things that had been done. It was also somewhat the film kind of us kind of justifying him becoming a murderer, essentially that, you know, Morris had caused all this and mm. all this pain and, things for people earlier in the film and he kind of deserved it and that and, and that we weren't just yeah and we weren't just killing people off and forgetting about them that's what I wanted to make sure that was clear there I remember that Adeline line that just came up there where she she goes I'll do it uh always uh got a great laugh to break this end game tension that we have built up I actually uh, love the line where um said, I won't burn you. And William says, thank you. That, that was, uh, that got a big laugh. And I, I didn't realize that was going to be such a laugh. Uh, wonderful visual effects shot there with uh, the muzzle flash and uh, Nolan's head getting, uh, getting splattered. Blood on the lens and everything. And I, I love this moment that um, this showdown, one of the many showdowns in the film, is uh, completely wordless from Ryan. You know, I, I think it's a moment where he realised he's done a lot of talking and nothing's been solved. And William hasn't changed. He's still trying to talk his way into Ryan helping him, but 
Mine. And I love we only, as you said, we only see Adeline's character for a brief moment, but she's so manipulative in the way she, and so selfish. And she strikes the, the whole tone of, of the film. As, as she began it, she kind of ends it as well, which is why she's so crucial. So uh, this scene, uh, we're outdoors. Um, and it was filmed in a, a, a kid's adventure playground uh, at the break of dawn. So we're all very cold. Um, and we just loved this playground, didn't we, Sam? How unusual it was. Well, yeah, we, you know, we were looking for lots of, locations and it was almost like it could be anywhere and when this came up it just felt like a a really strange moment to kind of come out of where they've been all this time and just be in this the one of the most innocent places you can think of which is a playground <laughs> walking around with a with a, a six shooter as well I love the music here. Absolutely fantastic. It, it almost brings in every part of the score that has been in the film earlier yeah and brings it all together. Um, really, really fun. And uh, this seems really interesting because um, a lot of people have said this to me, and, and I, we certainly were going for it. Um, and there's this idea, as we talked about between these two, is it romantic? Is it just that they both just have a goal? They want to get out of this world? And even though I've always seen them as ships in the night where Lydia's character wants to get involved in this, as we're about to see, because... Sammy, I think you had this great idea that she's about to uh, pick up the gun in the car and have a feel of it because she likes the idea of this life of crime, whereas my character is the one that wants to get out. So there's this very uncomfortable shift in here. And as many people have said, there's almost this hint that maybe I'm not long for this world because she probably would want to just take the money for herself and, and then uh, so many moments shoot in me in the head. That there's a lot of admiration between... Ms. M and, uh, and uh, Lydia and Ms. M obviously sees a lot of herself in Lydia and now Lydia's eliminated her it's almost like she's taking her, her place and then we have this uncertain ending <laughs> yeah well the, the ending is uh, interesting it was obviously it was like the last thing we shot and also the last thing we came up with right there um, was uh, we mixed the film in Riga in Latvia and uh, when we were out there the, originally the film just ended where Ryan started the car and drove off and I was over with Yanis Baladis who's a, a fantastic uh, sound mixer and uh, I just felt that it, it felt like we thought we were too cool for school and that they were just driving off into the sunset and I just thought this was probably one of the last days that we were mixing. And I, I said to Yanis, like, what if the car just doesn't start? Like, it's just the, the last thing Ryan could possibly want on the worst day that he's ever had. And, um, yeah, I think people have enjoyed that ending. And, uh, yeah, it's, you mentioned Riga, uh, Latvia there. I mean, just going back to, to the making of this and the, and the budget, yeah, we... We had to be very pragmatic, and a lot of the film's post was was done across not just the various studios in London, but also uh, in Riga in Latvia. We had the the Foley done in uh, Kiev, um, so it was a, a very uh, European uh, post production. As you can see, um, 
plenty of wonderful people on uh, part of this. And uh, Amy, particularly, I remember her and having so many makeup artists. And if you cast your mind back to one of the earlier scenes where we had so many actors, uh, it was a scene where Lydia and uh, Jay have their standoff. I remember all those makeup artists just trying to wheel these people out as quick as possible so we could get shooting. So really, really excellent work by them. Yeah, actually, when I, when there was a bit of silence there, I was just taking a moment in looking at the credits and <laughs> thinking, like you know, how grateful I was to all those people and and tr- and and trying to you know pick someone out to mention, but then everybody deserves a mention. Oh, big time! Uh, you can see also my my mum, <laughs> uh, my girlfriend Gina doing the catering because that was crazy. That two people were alternating catering for thirty people every other night and then I was carrying in all the food on the train um, and there's Envis there who did all the visual effects and graphics that we spoke about right at the start of the film and also Claire Winter is our colourist who is so great and um, she really helped me and Richard uh, you know uh, realise the, the the visual uh, the vision that we had for the film And a little shout out, Kids Charity were actually responsible for that playground at the end. Um, so that's very helpful that they allowed us to shoot there. And uh, Bill Friedman, who uh, is the godfather of the Prince Charles Cinema, who allowed us to screen this uh, in the Prince Charles Cinema, which was the most surreal thing. Who knew that we could get this small film in such a illustrious cinema in Leicester Square? And we played there twice, no less, because that's where Fright Fest also uh, premiered us also. Yeah, gigging, gigging, in it? Always gigging. So very much our second home. Charles <laughs> now. Hope, hopefully we'll be back. Oh, yeah, we will. And, uh, yeah. Yeah, oh, that's good. That's confidence. We're already writing the next one. Uh, so. And there's all <laughs> the various companies that helped us through. I mean, it's, it's, it's crazy. When I see all this, I'm just like, wow. I mean, this... These credits are such a testament to if you want to make a feature film, an indie feature film, you're going to need a lot of help, a lot of trust and, and put your trust in these people. They do their jobs for a reason. Absolutely. Well, uh, thank you very much, guys, um, for joining us through this commentary. Oh, and thank you, Luke. Um, and thank you, Sam. <laughs> Thanks for listening. We'll be back soon with another exclusive audio commentary, so please subscribe, rate us, and most importantly, tell your fellow film fans that Rogue Commentary is a thing. Follow us on Twitter for news about upcoming episodes, and if you have any suggestions for future contributors, email us at david at rogue-commentary.com. Bye! (laughs) 